0: talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Yeah, it's what we say, so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give.
1: Prevail. Session is never a program pro political. L'histoire, la sécurité nationale,
0: crime organisé, dinero social, global
1: corruption, tabro de pum, sa democracia. Y ahora,
0: ATP. Y maintenant,
1: con ustedes, su anfitrión, Greg Oliar. Greg Oliar. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show, the author of a new book called Spiderweb Capitalism, How Global Elites Exploit Frontier Markets. Kimberly K. Hong is here. Great conversation with her. She basically went undercover and infiltrated the world of high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals for many months, interviewed just, you know, hundreds of people and came away with an understanding of how that world operates that I think is super valuable and she likened it to a, a spider web because the strands of what's going on don't interrelate. The spider that's the little spider that's working on the, you know, the northwest uh, part of the spider web has no idea what's going on in the southeast and so forth. And it's constructed this way by design. And it's constructed this way so that the people doing this basically dirty work can sleep at night and say, well, I was just doing my job. I'm just balancing the books, man. I'm not involved with this uh you know, this malfeasance or this tax avoidance or whatever. It's, it's a fascinating book. It's a, a really important look at, you know, how this world operates. It's not a world that, that most people have access to, and she got access to it. And, you know, great book, great conversation. I look forward to uh, sharing that with you. Before we get to Kimberly, lots of news this week. I find it really fascinating that Trump and Putin are imploding at the same time. Uh, let's start with Putin. Um, you know, he's getting his ass kicked in in this Ukraine invasion is a debacle. It's just a a humiliating defeat uh, for for him, for Russia, the whole thing. It's exposed them as this paper tiger. They basically don't have any more soldiers or generals or tanks or anything. I mean, it's it's a joke right now. The Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, last week put them on their heels. Ukraine is reclaiming the territory that Russia took earlier in the war. And uh, so Putin has said, we're going to mobilize the, uh, the Russian forces. You know, okay. You know, when I was in middle school, we used to have like, you know, these jokes and these barbs that you used to trade with somebody. And someone would say, I'm going to kick your ass, man. And you would say, oh yeah, you and what army? So I feel like I'm asking Putin the same question. Oh, you're going to come get us? You and what army? Because dude, you don't have an army. Your army invaded Ukraine and got the fucking shit kicked out of it. And now you're calling up basically the equivalent of like my son's high school classmates in Russia who have no desire to be there at all, don't know how to fire weapons, aren't trained, either them or people that are older than me. And you think those people are going to train in your one crappy training site and then go into Ukraine and take it over? Come on. It's a joke. Everyone knows it's ridiculous. And that's why even in Russia, the powers that be are starting to turn on this guy. He knows it. He's a fucking loser. He's also, you know, he's stolen a lot of money from the Russian people. And what needs to happen is after Ukraine liberates the territory that Russia has stolen, I think that money needs to be seized, given to the Russian people and given to the Ukrainian people to pay back uh, them for destroying the, the cities. You know, this needs to be a a, a catastrophic mistake for, for Russia, no matter if Putin's there or not. There's no getting around it. And I think Putin knows it. I think he's terrified and good. I hope he's terrified. And the other point, and I've made this before, I'm going to say it again. The whole like cover story that he sells, oh, NATO is coming for us. We have to defend. Everybody wants to invade Russia. Dude, if anybody gave a shit about invading your crappy country, we would do it right now. When you don't have, literally don't have a fucking army. Like me and like 12 guys could invade Russia right now. There ain't nobody there. But you know what? Nobody cares. Nobody wants your shitty country. You can keep your, you know, your your indoor plumbing that doesn't work and, and all that shit. Just stay there. Nobody cares. Get your people out of Ukraine. Pay them back for the damage you caused. And that's it. And step down. That's it. That's what I've got to say about Putin. Meanwhile... Putin's little uh, little buddy in, in the United States is not faring very well either. This Judge Deary, between Deary and Trusty and Lindell getting busted at Hardee's. it's just there's so many names. I think we're running out of names in the simulation for these people. But Deary turned out to be, I guess, kind of fine. And uh, this special master business seems to be expedited. I'm recording this Wednesday afternoon. By the time you listen to it, who knows, maybe it will be resolved by the 11th, the 11th Circuit. I hope so. The guy stole documents, classified documents. He stole them. He removed them. He did not give them back. Some of them are missing. The chances that he didn't sell them to somebody are infinitesimal. And that's not his only problem. Tish James, the attorney general in my state of New York, today, this very day, Wednesday, September 21st, dropped the hammer, not only on Trump and his crap-ass company, but his kids, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric. Now those kids, I you know again, the MAGA idiots, they want to crucify Hunter Biden, right? They want to just throw the book at this guy for I I don't really understand what they think he did. But they want to throw the book at Hunter Biden, but if anybody goes near one of these three kids, it's like oh, you you have to stay away from the children, like they're, you know, like they're 8 years old or something, you know? They're not. They're they're grown ass people. They're grown-ups. They're adults. They know what they're doing. They made their bed, they lie in the bed, and all of them should be in prison. If this, if, if what they did is true, and spoiler alert, it is, they got to pay. And that's it. So <laughs> if she gets what she wants, the Trump org is basically not going to be able to deal in real estate in New York, which, you know, if you're a real estate company, it's, it, it's probably not great to not be able to deal in real estate. They're going to have a hell of a time getting a bank loan. I don't think they gonna be able to do that. Uh, basically he's going to shut down all operations for him other than just, I guess, grifting from morons who keep sending this guy money. And honestly, I feel like if people at this point are so stupid that they're going to send Trump more money, I guess just let him, you know, we're going to seize it anyway. I mean, he's, he owes $250 million now. Uh, she's going to try to recoup from all this tax stuff. So, you know, these MAGA idiots are going to give Trump money, and that money is either going to pay lawyers or it's going to wind up, back in the coffers of the government. So in a sense, these people were just paying a, a tax, which is they don't want probably. I don't know. Makes my head spin. However, bad week for Putin. Bad week for Trump. Good week for democracy. Bad week for Pat Sajak, too. Uh, <laughs> don't pose with Marjorie Taylor uh, Green. That's what, what are you doing, Pat Sajak? So I don't know if if, if you know, I don't think that the, the viewership of Wheel of Fortune is uh, gives a shit about this stuff, but I don't know maybe it's time for Pat to hang up the old uh, spurs and, and move on to something else in life maybe he can go on uh, he can go on the war room and be the host there while uh, Bannon is in the who's All right I've prattled on long enough I want to get to the the heart of the matter because this is a really fascinating interview Kimberly Hong like I said infiltrated these spaces she's done this before her first book she Basically, researched the sex work industry in in Vietnam, Myanmar, and elsewhere in uh, in Southeast Asia. That's an interesting book as well. So this is what she does: she infiltrates. I'm using the word infiltrate. That's not the right word. She embeds herself with the groups that she's studying, interviews everybody, observes, and you know collects data, and um, and then produces these books about it. Really fascinating stuff. Great conversation. So I'm going to stop talking. We'll be right back with Kimberly K. Hong. Don't let high prices push you out of the vacation picture. Fly our new one-way fun fairs. Whether you're going from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard, Martha's Vineyard to Cape Cod, or Nashville to Bob Sykes Airport in Okaloosa County, Florida, DeSantis Airlines is the best way to travel. If you're a citizen of Venezuela, you can skip the TSA line and get right on board. Even if you ride coach, you'll be given first-class treatment by Perla, our lone flight attendant and Obergruppenführer. And at DeSantis Airlines, you know the planes run on time. DeSantis Airlines. Airlines. Fly the fascist skies. And now, back to the show. Kimberly K. Hahn, welcome to the Prevail Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I'm super excited to talk to you. You wrote this great new book um, called Spiderweb Capitalism, how Global Elites Exploit Frontier Markets, which I've read and which is excellent. And uh, I think people listening to this are really going to like it because you you sort of attack this dark money thing in a way that, that I'm very interested in and people listening will be interested in. I want to get to all that, but before we go into the new book, I want people to hear a little bit about you. Now, you're a professor at the University of Chicago, sociology, and you wrote a book called Dealing in Desire, Asian Ascendancy, Western Decline, and the Hidden... Currencies of global sex work, which came out in 2015 before Trump when the world was normal. Um, yeah. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: so <laughs> before we get started though, t- tell us a little bit about you. How did you come to be interested in, in this sort of arcane uh area of interest?
0: You know, I I fell into it to be to be very honest. Um it's interesting because my first book Dealing in Desire is very different from my second book Spiderweb Capitalism. But from a personal story, there is kind of a there is a narrative arc, which is that my first book Dealing in Desire is a story about how the sex industry facilitates foreign investment into frontier economies. And the reason for that is in markets where there is not really clear rule of law or enforcement of contracts so many deals are done on the basis of a handshake and and on having blackmail, right? Um, and so that was a story of the book Spider, I mean, Dealing in Desire because, and that was a time when we were starting to see the rise of Asia and the decline of the West. It was around the 2008 financial crisis, where a lot of money being poured into Southeast Asia was coming from places like China, South Korea, more developed nations within the region, investing in less developed nations in the region. But then what happened was that there were, so I, that was based off of an ethnography where I worked actually as a hostess um, inside of four different bars. And I did kind of really a deep dive ethnography. Um, I, I, I was like, I was a hostess for, for 15 months basically, drinking, singing, dancing, all of that with the women as a way of trying to understand this economy. But, but there were limits there in that I couldn't really see what was happening outside of the hostess bars. Um, and so that sort of led me to the second project. And initially, I was really interested in a smaller question, which is sort of how do Western investors who are constrained by the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, particularly US investors, how do they navigate this market differently from Chinese investors or South Korean investors whose governments don't enforce any kinds of foreign bribery laws abroad? And as I started doing research for that second book, trying to answer a much smaller question, um, this kind of web started to unfold in front of me. And I just sort of I started to kind of follow the pieces of the puzzle as they were unfolding. And it took me a long time to put it together. But I think that's sort of the story of how I go from the first to the second book. I mean, I think at heart, I, I'm an ethnographer. I'm really interested in people. I'm really interested in how people make markets, how people make decisions, how people, um, how the markets move by uh, through emotion, through decision making, through relationships, and not just through a set of algorithms.
1: What does that mean, ethnography, like in very specific terms?
0: I mean, it, ethnography in very specific terms is about interviewing people, following people, um, observing relationships between people to try to understand, uh, you know, a, a phenomenon. So, it, you know, ethnography has a lot of times been used, most it's often been used to study down. And what I mean by that is studying Poorer populations. Um, I think of classic ethnographies like, you know, Lawrence Ralph's book *Renegade Dreams* or Forrest Stewart's book *Down and D- Down Out Under Arrest* or *Ballad of the Bullet*, which are typically ethnographies of gangs. Um, you know, and and it really actually does come out of the Chicago School of urban ethnography. I kind of take that and use it to study elites and say, well, yeah, you can spend an intense amount of time in you know, um, the South side of Chicago, but you can, and, and trying to understand the informal sort of gang drug economy there, but then you could also use it to study up and what does that look like and how do we do that? And so it's really about just spending a lot of time with people, interviewing people, following people around, shadowing people in their daily lives, and trying to put together their relationships with one another.
1: That's fascinating, and and it comes out in both of the books. So, all right, now you spent years now of your life infiltrating, infiltrating isn't the right word, but I'm gonna use it anyway, infiltrating first sex workers and that world, and then high net worth individuals and in that world yeah. in places like Vietnam, in places like Myanmar, um, so... Let's just acknowledge here that that's kind of badass, even though <laughs> you, you're you're coming from this ivory tower place. What you what you've done is is, you know, it's I, somebody says in the book you're very brave or do you I,
0: so I I try to be very careful with that because I think a lot of ethnography um, is voyeuristic in that it sort of is like, look at me, I'm a badass and let me tell you a story of what I did. And I guess the reason why I shy away from that is because I come from a very working class background. And I think that I'm very careful not to exoticize the poor. And then similarly, I don't want to exoticize the rich either, because so much of ethnography on the wealthy is voyeuristic. It's like, we're so obsessed with like, how do they spend their money? How do they consume? And I'm really interested in like, no, how do they make their money? How do they protect their wealth and their reputations? And not just like, not just take for granted that they are the tastemakers of the, you know, of the world, like how did they get there? Um, And I guess, you know, certainly I didn't put myself in the safest places and there were things that I did that were risky, both in the first book and in the second book, Um, you know, in the first book, I, yeah, I, I worked in these bars. I drank 12 hours a day for months on end. I did everything to try to lose. I mean, and, but I, I think that, for me, the data is what really matters. And trying to understand people outside of tropes and stereotypes is really important. And the only way to do that is to really embed yourself in these social spaces, to be able to present a kaleidoscope view and for and to be able to write about people as multidimensional characters instead of as tropes. Um, and the I, I feel like the only way to do that is to really dig deep and go far. And sometimes we don't, Always know how far we've gone when we're doing that work, um, but I don't want to exoticize it either.
1: Yeah, I think you did. You did a really good job of of doing of drawing the line there, because when you read the stuff, it it is it it gets to what, where you want it to go which is that it does feel like this great survey of what's going on rather than a, Hey, look at how cool I am, which a lot of like, for example, war reporting is like that. If you read like war books, there's all these, these guys that are clearly in very dangerous places. And they seem to, you know, they want you to know how dangerous it is. And you're this stuff isn't like that at all. Um, Not even remotely. That's why I felt the need to acknowledge it up front because, you you know, respect basically. So I, I thought it was also interesting looking at the two books and the subjects of the two books you know, sex workers in in one and that part of the economy, and then high net worth individuals, as opposed to ultra high net worth individuals, which we'll get to in a second. Mm. And both of them are people that cater to people richer than them for money, and will do you know basically yes. what they're told for money. Did you see similarities in, if not what they're doing physically, what the 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 uh, the mindset?
0: You know, you're the first person that's asked me this question, and I love this question.
1: Oh, good. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, and because it's the first time that I've had to really think on my feet in that way, which is that what I think is so interesting about the question that you're asking is that both of them are prostituting themselves for something. Exactly. Yeah. And um the the reason why I think that question is so I mean, I wish I had this conversation before. I, I just put in my dossier for promotion to full, And that's a really good narrative arc. I didn't put it in there. <laughs> um, but but it, the reason why I think about that actually is when all of the stuff about Jeffrey Epstein came out and all of the powerful people that were embedded in that that network, it reminds me a lot of the story that I tell between these two books, which is that... um. From where I come from, I was very naive when I started the research for this book, and and frankly naive as a assistant professor at the University of Chicago because I, because you know the university, the social world that I'm in, in 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 an elite university is also embedded in these spaces, and I I real I didn't under, I didn't quite understand the difference between you know, ultra wealthy individuals and the people who are highly compensated individuals who are the fall people who do a lot of this work. I, I often thought about the high net worth individuals as the really rich people. And I, and, you know, when I think about that, they are, they're taking reputational risks, criminal risks. They're actually engaged in health risks. Like there are these, some of these men, not, not all, but some of these men participate in the sex industry in a very Jeffrey Epstein type of way, um, as a way to build relationships of trust and, but also uh, create relationships of mutual hostage among each other, like having dirt on each other, getting, you know, and so I do think that there is a similarity and what's ironic about your question. And this actually goes back people. When I given in talks in academic settings about this book before I, you know, as, as a way to get feedback and think through the theory the one question that I often get asked is like, how did you get access to all of these people for the second book? And you know what's really interesting, which is an answer to this question that you had, is that most of the people had done their due diligence on me. They're highly educated, very intelligent people. And they read either the introduction to my first book or um, a news article somewhere in Vietnamese or in English. Very quick thing. And the first, and when I would go to do some of these interviews with my research assistants who are primarily University of Chicago undergraduate students, I would say to the students, okay, we have to do all this work of like asking dumb questions, warming them up before we can dig in. And all of us were surprised. Sometimes when we sit down in an interview and they would say, hey, I, I saw what you did for your first book. I know you know how this works. What do you want to know? And then they would just like pour out all of this stuff. And so I don't think that my second book would have been possible if I hadn't established myself with, with my first book and done the quote unquote dirty work for my first book because there was a certain kind of mutual understanding that we, we both understood each other. And we were, we were like doing parallel things in different spaces. And that really opened up Pandora's box for me for this second book.
1: Yeah, you established your, your your bona fides. I say it, but I know it's not really pronounced that way. But that's how I pronounce it, bona fides. Um, and I think these people want to want to brag a little bit about the stuff they've done. And who do you talk to? I mean, there's only so many people that even appreciate what it is that they've done and can get it. So I'm sure that if I was us, I would be delighted to, to talk to somebody who knew what the hell I was talking about. Would be would be would make my day. Um, I want to get into the new book now. Before I always forget to take a break, so we're going to take a break early so that I don't forget. We'll be right back with Kimberly K. Hunt. Men cannot know the anguish of being ruled ineligible on anatomical grounds beyond one's control. Slaves can perhaps understand eunuchs, too, and perhaps even those doomed nobles like the deposed Emperor Romanos Diogenes, whose eyes have been put out. But not men... This podcast is brought to you by Empress, The Secret History of Anna Kay. The new book by Greg Oliar. Now available on Amazon.
0: If the truth is ever to be
1: told, I am the only one left to tell it, and tell it I must. Okay, we're back with Kimberly K. Hong. I want to get into the new book, which is called Spiderweb Capitalism. I think the key to understanding how the book is set up is this This metaphor that you've drawn into the title with the spiders and the webs um talk a little bit about that i, I think it's a, it's a it's a perfect metaphor for for what you've got going on here so um enlighten everybody what you
0: yeah mean. so i think that you know spider web capitalism is something that emerged for me as i was putting the pieces of the puzzle together so the way that i think about it is that it's a network. It's a it's a it's a web, and it's a financial network, web, a financial web of people. And so I started to theorize it as a spider web, um, because it's a it's a capital web, a financial webs. In that there are different kinds of people who are putting these financial webs together. Um, and I actually drew inspiration from a group of social spiders, um, because it turns out if you just Google massive spider webs, you can find this particular group of social spiders who build out these massive webs. And they they work in community with each other. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is the story there. And so the way that I kind of take it further and theorizing it is that there are big spiders who I refer to as the ultra high net worth individuals. And then the sort of small spiders who are the high net worth individuals. And basically, what it is is that the small spiders are putting this big spider's money to work by by weaving the connective silk that puts the web together. But the webs are so complicated and they're three D and they're all over the place and they're not. um, You can't replicate the different webs because they're they. It what it does is it obfuscates each of the financial professionals' relationship with one another from each other. And what I think is fascinating about this is that. When I so there's lawyers, there's finance, there's fund managers, there's bankers, there's company secretaries, there's the you know, ultra high net worth individuals who are who all who are employing all of these people. But they are so specialized in the thing that they're doing to build out different parts of the web that they have plausible deniability in their relationships with one another. So so what it is is, it's a system uh, that features a complex web of subsidiaries that are interconnected across multiple sovereignties and I think are one hard to identify and two hard to quantify. And so what they do is they use offshore financial centers to enable both economic and political elites who, in less developed economies, but I would also argue in recent years under the Trump administration, also in developed economies, to basically secure exclusive um, access to insider deals for the sort of private accumulation of wealth. And so what is really interesting in the way that I think about it is that there is the ultra wealthy and the wealthy that are not just within nation. So it's not like, oh, the you know billionaires of the United States decide that they wanna go and make investments in frontier markets, and so the foreign investment goes from the United States to Vietnam or Myanmar. It actually runs through this very complicated web of subsidiaries that are offshore in the British Virgin Islands and Panama, Cayman Islands, Seychelles, that are then directed into other offshore entities in Hong Kong or in Singapore before they're invested onshore in Vietnam and Myanmar. And the reason why that's so important is one, it's legal. These are legal structures, even if people think that they're morally reprehensible, but the other is that it enables the ultra wealthy to see the whole world as their playground and to choose the legal jurisdictions that govern their financial activities. And so, so by mapping out sort of the people and the structure of the web I kind of show how increasingly in this global economy, um, frontier markets are, are tethered to develop markets. And, and actually what's really interesting is um, as I was doing research for this book, I it made me go back. I started to meet a, a number of institutional investors on, on the ground in Vietnam and Myanmar. And the first thing they would say to me is, oh, everybody's embedded in this market. Like go look at your retirement account. And around 2016, 2017, I looked at my retirement account, which is TIA, CREF, you know, a university. And guess what? 25% of the portfolio is invested in emerging and developing markets. So in in many ways, it, there's a way in which there these financial webs are all interconnected, but it's just very hard to see how they're interconnected and to see this as systemic rather than as like individual villains as part of a story.
1: Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. We, we were talking before we turned the camera on about um, Oliver Bullough's book, which is called Moneyland. And it's the same what you just described about these ultra high net people who kind of go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. He calls them moneylanders, which is a good, mm-hmm. I think, name for it. I like that. And um, the idea of of going from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, because there's certain countries where, you know, for example, in Great Britain, libel law is much more easy. It's easier to sue somebody for libel in London than it is in New York. So these people will go there when they're doing lawsuits of that kind, and stuff is easier to hide when it's in Delaware versus New York, let's say. So they'll you know, they'll go to uh, Delaware to incorporate all of their um, things that are incorporated in the United States, and then maybe the returns on banks are better in country X, and they'll go there to do that, and the bank res- banking secrecy laws are better in Luxembourg or whatever. So um, this is sort of uh, what you're getting at the what you said about the the ultra high net worth individuals versus the high net worth individuals as you're talking reminded me of the of this chris rock line where he was talking about the difference between being rich and being wealthy where he's like shaquille o'neal is rich but the guy who signs his check he's wealthy yeah. you know and i think that's the thing you see these yeah. like any of these high net worth individuals to pretty much anyone listening to this or just like Super loaded, like have more money than I'll ever have in my life. Yes. Why can't they be happy? But in in fact, they are functionaries yes. um to these much more wealthy people who are truly uh liberated to some degree, although I suspect a lot of these people aren't very happy either. Um yeah. certainly, certainly the rich people that we know about don't seem Elon Musk doesn't seem like he's happy to me. Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> doesn't seem like this this paragon of uh of good mental health. So um <laughs> Um, one of the, one of the chapters in your book, you talk about corruption and bribery. And mm-hmm. I think this is, a, this is really important because there a certain, you know, it, it, it in a sense, it's, um, what's the word it, 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 it's, um, it's semantics, right? Is yes. it corruption? Is it bribery? Is it, I'm just going to yes. donate a lot of money to Joe Manchin so that he votes yes on the coal stuff. You know, yeah. every country has relationships like this and ways that you can influence and lobby the key players but in in the emerging markets apparently i think it's it's less structured less regulated and therefore less prone to just good old fashioned here's 20 bucks i want the the best table in the back but writ yeah. super large but the united states has laws against this other places don't one of the the key um ideas in your book is the idea of playing in the gray, which is something that somebody told you, I think, early on in the interview process, which I interpret to mean sort of in in this area where it's not illegal, but it's not legal. We don't really know. Fuck it. Let's move ahead until somebody tells us not to. Is that?
0: Yes. Yes. That's such a great way of describing it. Um, You know, actually, the initial title of the book was Playing in the Gray. I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. um, Good title, too. Yeah, it wasn't it ended up not being the title because it turns out that gray is complicated to publish in the US market versus the UK market because it's spelled differently.
1: Oh, yep, yeah, yeah, you're right. But you spell it the American way by the way.
0: I do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um but you know, it's a language that many that actually emerged it came up over and over again in the interviews that I was doing, which is it's the it's the, what people are doing when they're finessing this gray space between legal and illegal activity. And clearly, you know, what is legal in one jurisdiction is not legal in another jurisdiction. And how do you navigate that? And when you go to emerging markets, um, you know, you're kind of etching into there from developed economies. And when you go into frontier markets like Vietnam and Myanmar, you're really in a new frontier. And Vietnam is kind of hovering between frontier and emerging market. And so it's an interesting place to look at vis-a-vis China and and Myanmar, you know, even in terms of thinking about um, what it means to play in the gray in those spaces. But in the book, when I talk about, you know, varieties of corruption and bribery, I think it's really interesting because so much of the work that's done by political scientists looks at corruption from the, from the position of state officials, right? Like, um, being on the side of receiving bribes or whatever, but it doesn't actually look at how people are paying those bribes, the, the sort of looking at the economic side of it or the financial, the you know, looking at how financial professionals carry this out and what i think is interesting is that there's um degrees of gray in in thinking about different types of corruption right so there is you know first of all when in these both of these economies everyone would say corruption is rampant and that's a kind of a taken for granted thing it's in the news it's in the media i don't think i'm saying anything controversial when i say that these are highly corrupt economies but what's interesting is I think that it's important to think about this corruption along a continuum where, okay, so if you have highly inefficient bureaucracies where it's difficult to get licensing or permits or to get your business registered, and you go to you know ex state office to register your business for a license or permit, and you you know slip a hundred dollar bill or twenty dollar bill to get the bureaucrat to move more quickly on your file. Um, People would call that a facilitation payment, which actually is legal under many other jurisdictions, right? Like there are several countries, even in the United States, that's not considered illegal activity, right? But if you're paying someone to, you know, but if you're engaged in bribery where you are, you know, gifting cash to get access to an insider deal, that's that's a, one other end, right, of, a, of the continuum. But there's also people get creative, right? And so instead of just giving straight cash, they give very um, personalized and intimate kinds of gifts. And what I talk about in the book are like things like Rolex watches and Hermes handbags that are coveted um, stores are art, things that are coveted items that are hard to get, that you can personalize, but that are stores of value that can be quickly transferred to cash if needed. And then it's a question of is that a gift or is that a bribe? Um, and you know things like you know scholarships to for your child to study for a, somebody's child to study abroad, all kinds of workarounds. Um, and then, you know, it also gets into some things that came up recently with J.P. Morgan, where, you know, it, it was in Hong Kong, it was known as the Sons and Daughters Program, where one thing that's very common in these economies is to hire the sons and daughters or, or the close family members of public officials to work as consultants in your office. And their job is to help navigate government relations. Are they providing a certain kind of expertise? On the ground people would say yes, there this is part of a joint venture. Outside they would say this is bribery corruption. But then again, whose jurisdiction are we talking about? Because in the local market it wouldn't be considered corruption, but in a foreign market it may it might be. And so I think that what the book is trying to get at are, are these like variations of gray that are that give plausible deniability and that obfuscate the bribe.
1: Yeah. It's good that we live in the United States where stuff like that never happens. Politicians' kids have never been hired by any company to do anything. It's never <laughs> it's never happened before. Um Lord knows I it like makes these Chicago.
0: MA-
1: <laughs> <laughs> It makes these maga people nuts. They can't get over the Hunter Biden thing. It's just cuz this yeah. one company hired him. Um it didn't help. Uh okay, so tax strategies. That's another part of your book. And I think, you know, when when we talk about inequality and You know the the money moving around in my mind, and maybe I I don't understand it as well as you do. Obviously, but the thing that bothers me about this isn't the money going into the emerging markets. It's good that we're investing money in Vietnam and Myanmar. That's great. You know we should be doing that. Capital flowing from the United States to developing markets is good for everybody in that very pure capitalistic sense. The problem is that none of the shit gets taxed. That's the problem. So you have money that leaves the. Uh, you know the accounting of all this global stuff, and it just vanishes from the tax ledger, and that to me is the problem. That's what creates the inequality. Um, in, in Bolo's book, he he differentiates between dirty money, which is the the money from the the, the actual criminals, you know, some oligarch that just steals money from Moldova or something, versus uh, naughty money, he calls it, which is people kind of hiding and trying to skirt tax laws, often le- perfectly legally but Mm -hmm. not morally great. So um, Mm. what kinds of things are are these people up to and what can we do to make them pay?
0: I think that's a really hard question because uh, first of all, one of the things I talk about in the book is that strategies of tax evasion and tax avoidance are essentially functional equivalents where one is illegal and the other is legal. And most firms start out engaging in practices of tax evasion until they grow large enough where they have enough assets that they can hire out the big accounting firms to develop strategies for tax avoidance. But they're, they're functional equivalents. I mean, they're they're essentially this one and the same. I think that Gabriel Zuckman and, um, and sort of crew of economists have started to try to tackle this, this issue by saying that we need to have a global wealth registry and also that we need to have clear, clearer transfer pricing strat, you know, laws between countries. And so, what you started to see are countries like the United States and Western Europe putting in laws around transfer pricing practices. That's fine, but then those same practices move to China, and then in the markets that I study, Vietnam and Myanmar, they're just piggybacking off of what China was doing and copycatting China and India, um, and moving basically to. Uh, greater frontier economies as to, to basically run transfer pricing practices before the regulators get a handle on them. And, you know, there was a big public story in the media when, um, you know, grab taxi, bought Uber in Southeast Asia, and the state was trying to tax them and they couldn't figure out how to tax them because all of the, the entire transaction was booked offshore. And I think that that's a really good public example of the ways in which these one, offshore structures, but also transfer pricing strategies make it difficult for governments to tax um, these kinds of transactions. It's a high-level example, but it happens often. You know, in a very mundane way. At a, at a lower example, one thing that happens is that firms often book their liabilities onshore. So they say, "Oh, we're just sending money down to cover operations." We're like, you're, "You know, everything is so costly." So it's a kind of an accounting strategy of basically saying they're they're reporting losses onshore where they're higher taxes. But reporting all of their profits offshore where they're lower where, where where they're in lower tax jurisdictions like Singapore, Hong Kong, BVI, et cetera. I think what's really challenging, and people often ask me, like, what do we do about this? And I say, and you know, Gabriel Zuckman and all say, well, we have to have this global wealth registry. And if the United States and Western Europe participated in it, that would account for 50% of all sort of global um, GDP. And I guess my response to that is a little bit more pessimistic coming from Southeast Asia, which is that, right, but that assumes that the United States isn't, it doesn't have this like very complicated geopolitical relationship with China and Russia, because Russia and China point their fingers right back to the United States and Delaware, which you mentioned as citing Delaware as the biggest gangsters on the block who actually don't report the financial activity that's happening offshore for China and Russia in Delaware, and Hal Weitzman wrote this book, What's the Matter with Delaware, which came out with Princeton University Press, which I would really like to plug here because Hal Weitzman makes this very bold statement about Delaware and the lack of reporting between, um, you know, the United States, Russia and China. And so I think that there, what's, what is laid over this are the very geopolitical tensions between countries that make it such that they're not going to engage in this kind of um there, we, we won't have, we can't successfully have a global wealth registry unless there is cooperation and peace across these different um, nation states.
1: Right. So we can't very well be the ones to say, um, hey, stop doing this when we're doing it worse than anybody in Delaware and South Dakota and stuff.
0: That's like. what Hal Weissman would say. I didn't have the audacity to say that in my book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> your your book only. There is a little part about Delaware. It o- it only touches on it. Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, Delaware is. I remember years ago, twenty years ago, somebody wrote something in the New Republic calling Delaware just just ripping on it, how awful it was, and you know, pirating money. Even the the throughway that go I'm uh, uh, not the throughway the. Um, the, the turnpike you know 95 that goes through Delaware is there yeah. for like 12 miles or something and they exact so many tolls from it that it pays for all the other highways in the state and stuff like that. I can't remember who wrote the the article but it it, it still holds up. Now of course one of Delaware's senators is our president which is also kind of funny.
0: This is what I think this is <laughs> but I want to say this too because one of the things I open my book up with is the story of one MDB and I and I tell the story about how you know, Joe Lowe funneled money into both Trump victory and um, Black men vote in Trump victory. And you know what I think? What I what I want to be really clear about is that it's a bipartisan problem. Like yes. it's not me being a Democrat pointing my fingers at the Trump administration when Biden hails from De- Delaware. And if there's anybody who knows anything about the structure of Delaware and the structure of offshore entities, it's Biden. But they're not doing anything. And the reason why they're not doing anything, I think, is is it it's systemic. It's that the political sphere and economic sphere are so tightly woven, even in the United States, that we're not seeing this. Um, that we're not we're not seeing the kind of regul regu- regulatory structures that we would hope to see in place, because essentially it's asking the regulators to regulate themselves, not just abroad, but also here in the US.
1: There's another kind of key point there um, in, in the point that you are, are piggybacking on the on the point that you just made, which is that because these little spiders and the people that are making their, their little section of the web, because it's so isolated, they're like the people in severance who are down on the severed floor playing with the numbers. They don't really know what they're doing. They just know I'm going to do this specific job and then I'm, I'm punching out the clock and, you know, I'm fine, I'm good. They don't see the big picture. So um, here is a quote from your book. Spiderweb capitalism is designed to hide the consequences of individuals' actions in producing inequality. The problem, you say, is systemic, and that's it. It's by design. It's uh, I'm not doing anything wrong. All I'm doing is balancing these books here. But all of it is part of this this enormous puzzle that boosts money from you know people that need it, basically.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you picking that up because one of because you're one of the few people that kind of gets the argument that it's systemic. Um, oftentimes people ask me, like, okay, who's the villain in the story? You know, and I will say, right, with Occupy Wall Street, it was very easy to figure out who the villains were. It were all it were the financial executives of all of these firms. You could name them, like countrywides, person, you know, Anthony Mozilla, all of these people. I think that what is so important about this is that there is no villain. And you know, I, this is and actually speaking very humbly about the process of doing research, particularly as a woman trying to study mostly men in finance, is that it's very hard to study experts. And there were, you know, people were not nice and they were often condescending and they were often like, are you an economist? What are you doing? Or I was like a cute teacher wanting to try to understand what they were doing. And there was advantages to that because it got people to say a lot of things that they probably wouldn't otherwise say to my colleagues at my male colleagues at Booth. Um, However, one of the things that I think is just really interesting was that the, I often thought like what, what they're experts in their domains, right? Like, I'm not going to know more than a lawyer who's highly specialized in putting together these contracts. I'm never going to know more than the banker that's working, that's putting, you know, that's doing their quote unquote, you know, do your du- due diligence and KYC or know the client. Like, and so I often thought like, what is a sociologist add value here? Like, what am I, what do I bring to the table? And it was in the comments that they kept saying like, well, yeah, I do my highly specialized tasks, but I don't really know what that person is doing over there. And I don't want to know. Or, And it was actually the lawyers who kind of turned me on to this because it was the lawyers that asked me, do you know what a special purpose vehicle is? Do you know what a holding company is? And I said, no, I don't. Can you please tell me what it is? That's what thrust me into the world of offshore. But what was interesting was that the lawyers who were setting up the structures onshore in Vietnam and Myanmar were different from the lawyers who were setting up the structures offshore in Hong Kong and Singapore. And while they knew of each other, they didn't know what the other person was doing and they purposely didn't want to know what each other was doing. And so it wasn't just that I mean it was the lawyers that really that really um, taught me how they obfuscate their relationships with one another in the web, but that opened my eyes to the ways in which bankers and other financial professionals do it. And so ultra high net worth individuals have so much plausible deniability. When I think of the case of 1MDB, the fall person in 1MDB was Timothy Leisner who has this high profile because he's married to Kimora Lee Simmons. Right. But Timothy, nobody talks about Timothy Leisner as the fall person. Nobody talks about Michael Cohen as Trump's fall person. Like, behind that fall person is this big spider is this ultra high net worth individual who reaps all of the financial rewards and assumes no criminal or financial risks in the, the these kinds of deal making and risky investments
1: we're seeing it now with trump with with the um the insurrection stuff and even with the FBI stuff like he doesn't send emails he only calls people on the phone and shouts to them and stuff like that so there's enough plausible deniability to make it so that you know he can say oh, i didn't i didn't do anything it's these horrible yeah. people that are working for me never mind that he hired them and picked them for their criminality but whatever um there's yeah. a story i think i got this from the the um the winds of change podcast the, the about um there's a fable about the elephant, you know, where, where it's, it's like blind men. Touch, I'm going to totally mangle this. It's blind men touching the elephant and one blind man, you know, only knows the elephant's trunk and the other one only knows the, the, the hind quarters, and someone else only knows the tail so that each one of these people has a very specific idea of what the elephant looks like, but nobody knows because they can't see it because they can't see the whole elephant. They only know the piece that they're working on. And, um, you know that's what your book is also trying to do—is is see, you know, showing us what the damn elephant looks like. It looks like yeah. a spider. We're getting our animals yeah. mixed up, but that's okay.
0: Yeah, and you know, I only came to that when um, I had after collect doing so many interviews. I was asked to present some of this work back to to a handful of financial firms that I where I had done some of these interviews, and I remember presenting, and I was very nervous because I thought, like, oh my gosh, they're going to find sort of the The piece of yarn that's going to unravel the entire ball and I'm going to have to go back and do more interviews. And this is, this book is going to take me a lot longer. And it, it did take me a lot longer than I, it took me two to three more years. And I thought in my head, when I started out with this project and what was really fascinating for one was that people were like, the reaction was, wow, nobody's put this together For me to see like and and the reason why they haven't is because they don't have the time I mean no one has the luxury of time to sit and think about their their relationships with one another but the other was that you know they none of them pushed back they were like this is this is totally accurate but again because I don't really know what's happening over there I don't know what these other people are doing I'm not the villain of the story and the other thing that I think people would say too is that well and my husband and I got into this conversation of the chicken and egg, right? Like, cause I, cause I can't, and I can't answer this question. I actually don't know the answer. Which is, is it that ultra high net worth individuals know all of these practices, or is it that? Because what they will say is, oh it's just my money but you know financial professionals tell me the the lawyers they're specialized they tell me what to do they are the ones that put it all together the the bankers are the ones that like tell me how to set up all these structures it's like taxes like you just go to your accountant and your accountant tells you what to do right and the, and then the financial professionals would say well yeah but they're also directing how they want their money invested where they want their money invested and if they say they want to go into these new frontiers because they're are lucrative opportunities, they're high risk, potentially high return on investment, then we have to set up these structures this way. And so even for them, they, they can't point the finger at any, you know, it, it, there's no one villain. And I think that was what took me forever to write this book because I was trying to figure out how to tell the story to, and, and, it, and, it, and, it, and to tell one that's systemic, which I know is not popular because everybody wants a villain to go after.
1: Yeah, it's hard to tell a story without a villain. A good villain goes a long way, but you know, we don't know who the villain is, but we do know who the victims are, and the victims, the prey as you put it, is everybody else. Yeah. You know, we all suffer because of these greedy MFers, you know. That that that's really the truth of of what goes on. Um so I want to ask a little bit about just the psychology of some of this stuff. Like, okay, so for you, now you're here, you're spending a lot of time talking to these people who are enormously, grotesquely wealthy. Um, When I lived in New York City, which I did for 10 years, it was impossible to go around and not be aware constantly of how little money I had compared to anyone else, right? Like, so did that get to you? Did it bother you? Or was it not a thing? Or were you grateful? Like, how did, I don't know. Did it affect you at all? I guess is my question. Yeah,
0: I would be lying if I said it didn't affect me. Um, You know, I think that ethnographies. Uh, As a method, are deeply. um, It's like it's kind of akin to method acting in in a way. Like you really kind of, you really if to do it well, you have to embed yourself into their social world. You have to have empathy. You have to you know, and you develop tastes and ways of language, ways uh, you know, things that draw it's a way of relating to people and getting and drawing, you know, being for them to trust you and get, to get them to say things, you know? And I think that, you know, I had just moved to the university of Chicago, which is a very elite academic institution that um, where many of these people come from. And if I'm, if I'm to be honest, the university of Chicago's business school has a reputation in the financial world of, of being highly theoretical And Harvard and Wharton have reputations of being highly corrupt in these markets. And (laughs) um, to no surprise, Trump comes from Wharton. I mean, I don't know why I was surprised. I mean, this, this is the, this is what people were saying to me before Trump. Um, This was in 2016, 2017 when I was doing these interviews. But so, so I had moved into this kind of elite space and I started following people around and my whole, my tastes changed. It's funny because a friend of mine who's an academic was like, Oh, you know, um, you post all these like fancy meals on Instagram and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I, that there was a time in my life where I found that to be very seductive. Like I got super rich data sitting in a three hour, 16 course meal with somebody, right? Like they're stuck there with you. You're stuck there with them. It's an intimate setting. Um, You know, there were very tricky settings. I'm married. And so I had to be like, how do I, dif- how do I get to the end of this three hour dinner and and pay for the meal so that they know that this isn't a date, you know, I mean, there, but um but there's something that's very seductive about like doing interviews and in airplanes and, and, and being thrust into their world of, you know, leisure and, um, and, and actually leisure at a discount because the economy of free, and highly discounted things is one I I was totally um, thrust into. I mean, my whole wardrobe changed. I had, you know, hand-me-down clothes from some of these men's wives when we were traveling together, and they are like, you totally look like a nerdy academic, and you don't fit. If you're going to follow us in this entourage, you cannot <laughs> look like this. And so, you know, there's no way that I didn't change as a result of it. Now that I've had some distance, and, and because of COVID, and because I was writing, and I, you know, I I was like, wow, I don't enjoy, I'm not, maybe I grew out of that. I don't enjoy those things the way that I did back then. So I would be lying if I didn't say I wasn't changed by it or that I didn't I didn't find it alluring in some way. I mean, I also am very privileged in the space. I don't think people would have talked to me the same way they did if I didn't come. For, if I, w- I started out doing this project as an assistant professor at Boston College. Nobody would talk to me. I knocked on so many doors. And Boston College, you know, is not a, it's not an it's a, it's a private elite institution. A lot of financial professionals send their kids there. But there's something about being at the University of Chicago or i mean certainly if i was at harvard or princeton like there's something about that that opened up a lot of doors and people were willing to speak more candidly i hail from an institution that espouses free market economics right like this is that space and so um i think that i grew up with the project in a different way i mean ethnography changes you my first book i was i think like doing the dirty work and being you know in some ways, prostituting myself for data, if if there's an analogy, right? And in my second book, I had made it. I got this like cushy tenure track position, was hanging out with all of these really wealthy people. They weren't not always nice, they were mean, they were condescending, they were yelling at me. It was humiliating for my male undergraduate research assistants to trans- listen to some of these interviews and transcribe them. But now that it's done, I realize that there's power in that data and that there's power in, you know, um, being humiliated in front of some of these students but but it, so i think that you know one of the things though is that it helped me have empathy for some of them because for many so that the last chapter of the book which um you know it, people never really get to when they read a book, and i, I fully aware of that, is The Exit. and It's a story of feast and famine.
1: That's the last question on my list, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: Well, <laughs> I hope I'm not getting at, at it too early, but it's it gets at the psychology of what happens when you make a lot of money and what happens when you lose a lot of money, and the ways in which it ch- changes your psychology. Like, Suddenly it's, and I think about this, the other day I said to a friend of mine, Rachel Sherman has this book, Uneasy Street, which is about um, sort of a wealthy group of people in New York. And one of the stories, and it, it's actually a very interesting book, but one of the things that she talks about, about sort of like this ultra, I mean, they're really high net worth individuals is sort of these renovation projects that they, they constantly buying houses. And you have this like male partner who's working and a female partner who's at home. And she's like doing this constant you know renovation and it's like those things you, you get introduced into their world of furniture and tastes and luxury and all that and and markers right like what is nuva Riche brands and what are the things like the wrangler jeans in jackson hole wyoming right like the all of these subtle markers that you start to notice and pay attention to but that they are also very keenly aware of Um, And that while they pretend like they're not paying attention to it, definitely are. And I think that it's, um, you know, it's that it's it's the psychology of what was really interesting to me is like when people made a lot of money in these markets, they ironically were very lonely. And in a Mario Small wrote this book, Someone to Talk to. And I think it's interesting because um, it's like people who you would think are very successful, who would have all of these people around them didn't really have people to share it with, including their own spouses. And there were stories of like, Oh, well, my wife just, she, uh, you know, she just expects a certain kind of standard of living. And as long as I provide that, like, she doesn't need to know all of this. If I, you know, and like very expensive, like, you know, I would go with them to shop for very expensive jewelry, like diamond rings, like Van Cleef, like things I didn't know. I, I didn't have no exposure to, or didn't know about before in Spending time with them, and it's like, oh, this is what I do. Like that's all she cares about. As long as I could provide this lifestyle, it doesn't matter that I just closed a deal and made two hundred and million dollars. You know what I mean? What I mean? Um, and then on the other hand, those that lost a lot of money on the market ironically had a lot of people to talk to. Their public relations agents, their lawyers, their therapists who are all all around the world, and um, had a had a ironically a, a broader community to draw on uh, as they were going through this, and were able to kind of. Re- Bounce back from it, um, and 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 demonstrate a certain kind of resiliency in the market. Because I do think it's important to talk about the economic precarity that they feel, even if they're really. It's like what you said about Elon. I mean, it's like even though they're very very rich, and I and they have what I think of as "fuck you" money, like you know, they're not worried about their day to day bills. There's a certain kind of economic precarity that they feel in going into these frontier markets, in making risky. Bets in these kinds of markets, and there's certainly winners and losers, and so there is a psychology to it, um, for sure. And I and I am really interested in the people and and the and how they make sense of the ways that they navigate playing in the gray, and also their experiences of feast and famine.
1: It's interesting the feast and famine. I think it's a lose lose in some sense because. You know, the, the people that win, as you said, they're lonely and they're lonely because they have so much freaking money that everybody they meet is aware of that. And on some yeah. level, they know that uh, or or suspect that the person's only wants to talk to them because they have all this money.
0: Yes. And What does
1: that do to your psychology? On yes. the other hand, the people that fail have failed and it sucks to, you know, I, I'm not a gambler at all because, I, you know, l- losing money. Gambling is like the worst feeling. It just is horrible. It's much worse than winning. You know, yeah. and uh, so to to go through something like that and you're in these emerging markets and, you know, we we put fancy words on stock market and all this kind of stuff, but it's all gambling. It's just yes. legalized gambling. That's all that it is. When you put money in a place like Myanmar and then the government falls, well, what do you do? You know, I'm reading this book now about the post-World War II sort of spy networks and stuff like that. And so much of what happened was because Nazis were trying to get their money safely out of country A and move its country B. Yeah. It's all about, shit, all of our fortune is behind enemy lines. What are we going to do about it? Yeah, And like, you know, hey, that's not a problem that I have. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. but, you know, it, that was a great answer that you that you gave about the the, the exposure to the, to the rich people. What you've learned is what Milton Friedman knew, you know, the University of Chicago, that there is no free lunch and there is no free 17 course dinner either, apparently. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Thank you for laughing. The <laughs> are Wrangler jeans really hip now? Is that true?
0: I think among the very wealthy oh, um, wow. that I study, they're very. It's interesting because I, you know, my taste changed, and I was like, I like designer things. I this feels nice, and they're like, Oh no, that's like New barish. Like you know, they don't they it's very understated um, and, and frontier,
1: you know, yeah, I think frontier. it's a new
0: frontier yeah. actually.
1: Okay. No, I, it, it it's interesting to me. It's not something um, I keep up on. I'm not a fashion plate by any means. I do know that, Rolex watches suck and everybody that is actually rich does not wear a Rolex, you know, because they know that there's, there's other ones that are better. That That's a brand you wear to show off your nouveau richness or that's, or maybe has it flipped now? Has it come all the way full circle where everybody knows that?
0: I think it's interesting because I was at this um, wealth and inequality conference and I do think that there's a difference between the ultra wealthy in the West and the ultra wealthy in East and Southeast Asia, okay. because um, there's a certain kind of display of money that you that in the West you would you would associate with nouveau riche, but that really only the sons and daughters of billionaires can afford to do. I mean, it's 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 interesting that that kind of display because, and I'm very cognizant of it as I travel between places because. Things that would be more subdued on in the U.S. side, for example, like that Rolex watch or that, you know, hand, you know, that Hermes handbag or whatever um, is very much in your face in Asia. And and in all of those brands have since moved many of their flagship stores to those countries. And you can see crazy sales in those countries because that's the thing there. Um, And you could one could call that new money in Southeast Asia. But. I do think that even the Western investors that are mo- making their way to those markets, you see them carrying those things over there in ways that they don't overhear. People code switch um, in 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 a global space in a way that I think also is fascinating.
1: Ooh, I like code switch. That's good. I like that. That's a good, um, I've never heard that before.
0: But the thing I will say really quickly about Rolex watches yep. is that there is, there is, even among them, I can't remember, but there's like something like, There is the Rolex watch that you can go in and buy. And then there's the one that you have to be offered to buy. I can't remember what the brand, but the the name is. But it's the same as the handbags, right? Like you have to be offered. You have to have a relationship with a sales associate. And so it's those watches that they're really paying attention to, not the-
1: Not the ones the hoi polloi have, you know, anybody. Yeah. (laughs) It is funny. I I got my wife um, a Prada handbag for her birthday last year. And I got it because I got a really, really good deal on it. But it's very lovely. And she went to Asheville, North Carolina with the handbag. And she was like, everyone was so nice to me whenever I <laughs> went into the stores. Like they just were like, oh, here we go. She must have money, you know. And they were they were fooled. Uh- <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's really, you know what's so funny? I feel like maybe we're like kindred spirits because as I was doing this research, um, one of the financial, one of the very wealthy people that I was studying actually owned a franchise and, um, and I got a lot of high end things at 90% off essentially so that I could like dress appropriately. And what I developed is my own taste was Prada because I thought it was understated. It kind of fit the professor look and it yep. felt authentic to me, but then also it wasn't so loud like the other labels in terms of having labels all over. So it's interesting.
1: Yeah. It, it is a very, the leather is extremely nice. It's very, it's a, it's a very nice thing. Um, I'll say that. So Prada, if you're listening and you want to sponsor the podcast, we'll, we'll totally, you know, we're, we're good. I'm sure many of my listeners would, would rush to buy Prada things if, if, <laughs> uh, if there was an ad here um, and Rolex, I'm not too proud, you know, I'll, 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 uh, I'll do it. Timex, Rolex, whatever. We're all good. You know, it, it's all fine. So, um, okay. So we're running up on time. Um now you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle?
0: Oh, I think it's Kimberly K Hong. Let okay. me look. K-A-Y yes, Kimberly- or just the letter K? Just the letter K.
1: Okay. I'll put it in I'll put it in the show notes. And then you mentioned your Instagram. Do you have you have like fun pictures of food and stuff on Instagram?
0: Um, I'm locked out of my Instagram. I think my <laughs> account was hacked. So I don't have access to it anymore.
1: Okay. So we won't, we won't boost uh, your Instagram. Although if there's
0: anyone who works for Instagram, I've been trying to get back in for several weeks now and I can't. So if someone can help me, that would be great.
1: Okay. Um, Insta people, you know, get on it. <laughs> um, you have a website, which I think is your, right. So you, it's your full name, right? Kimberly K. Yes. Uh, okay. Dot yes. um, Check that out. This was so much fun. The, the book is called Spiderweb Capitalism, How Global Elites Exploit Frontier Markets. Kimberly K. Hong, thanks so much for joining me today. It's a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for your really engaging questions. They make me feel excited about this book coming out.
1: You should be excited because it's a really good book. So people should go buy it. That's what I have to say about it. Um, Thank thanks again. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Alison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliard.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.